have your Bible, let me invite you to take it and be finding your place with me in the book of Daniel, the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9. After a few weeks of being away, I want to pick back up in our study of Daniel where we last left off. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 20 of this ninth chapter here in just a few moments. But one of the greatest truths that we're taught in the book of Daniel is this. The kingdoms of this world are passing away and the kingdom of heaven is coming to pass. Aren't you grateful for that? Isn't that good news for 2021? The time is coming when all the kingdoms of this world will belong to the Lord Jesus Christ And that's an unshakable truth that we're given here in God's Word. And it's a truth that Daniel deals with in particular. And really because of this fact, Christians ought to be the calmest people on earth. In in chaotic times, in times of upheaval, we really have no right to run around in frenzied activity, pacing the floor, worried about the outcome of this, and concerned about the outcome of that and all of this. No, listen, we can take confidence in the fact and find refuge in the truth that our God is sovereign and he is in control uh, of what's going around, going on in the world around us, no matter the way that it seems to us from an observation standpoint. So Daniel, really he stands like an iron pillar in his day, which was a difficult time, but Largely, his success is because he knew that God, the sovereign God of the universe, is also the sovereign God of his life. And Daniel is one of the most important characters in the pages of the Bible. He's a man of courage under fire. He's a man who swam upstream against a heavy current of cultural opposition. And so I've thoroughly enjoyed our study through this book of the Old Testament And Daniel's story has significance for us, practical relevance for us even today, especially when you consider the backdrop of today's spiritual climate, moral climate, political climate, which can best be described as chaotic and even corrupt. And so Daniel reminds us that we're not the first people to face challenging times. If you feel like You know, you're the first person to ever encounter difficulty as a child of God. That's why church history is really a good study for us because we're not the first of God's people to ever experience difficult times. One person has said that Daniel wrote the book on how God's people can survive in a pagan, permissive, and even perverted culture. You consider his life. Uh, Daniel was born in Jerusalem. He grew up in a culture that largely was founded upon Mosaic moral law, but he's dropped into one that was totally foreign to everything that he had known and had been taught. You talk about culture shock, well, Daniel is someone who experienced culture shock. He's a teenager when he's carried away into captivity, taken from Jerusalem, uh, taken from all that he had known, all that he was comfortable with, and he's uprooted and planted in a pagan context with a culture that is totally unlike the one that he had been used to. Now, he doesn't languish in the midst of that culture, but Daniel, we're going to discover, thrives even in such a difficult circumstance. O.S. Hawkins has said that Daniel could have spent his energy 
blaming his circumstances on societal ills, the court system of his day, government policies, political leaders, or the educational systems, just as we Christians in our culture can assign blame today. However, Daniel steps off the pages of God's word and into our modern culture to reveal some principles that can enable us not to simply survive in our culture, but to engage our culture, even thrive in our culture and be used of God to transform it. Now, you know, believers can really respond in one of three ways to the culture today. Uh, on one hand, we can sort of condone the culture and sort of get swept up in the culture, and our lives can become no different than the culture around us. That's one extreme. Another extreme is to sort of retreat into our corner and do nothing but condemn the culture around us and point fingers of accusation and blame. That's another extreme. What does God intend for his people to be? Salt and light. And that's what Daniel is in his day. So really the only option that we have as believers from a scriptural standpoint is to confront the culture, to engage the culture with the truth of God and with the gospel. Daniel confronts the culture of his day. He thrives in the midst of the culture of his day. And largely it's because Daniel is a man of prayer. And that's why it's so important that we understand his life even in the most godless of environments, this is a lesson that we don't want to miss out on. Daniel is successful in Babylon largely because he's a man of passionate prayer who understands that God has him there for a reason and a purpose. And this is something that we see emphasized in this ninth chapter. Daniel's a man of prayer. He's a praying man. How did he respond to the pressures of society around him? Listen, Daniel went to his knees. Daniel went into his prayer closet and he spent time with God. You want to thrive in 2021, no matter what this year has in store for you? Listen, be a praying man, a praying woman who's dependent upon Almighty God. The strength of the Christian life, it's not you striving and trying harder, but it's Christ living his life in and through you. It's the life of God in me. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And prayer understands that. Prayer recognizes that. Well, if you've got your Bible there, look with me. Daniel chapter 9, verse number 20. I'm going to begin reading there in verse 20. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I want to stop reading there, but what we find here in this, these verses and really the, the final few verses of the chapter is an answer to the prayer that Daniel has prayed in the first part of chapter 9. If you go back, you remember the end of November, I spent a couple of weeks looking at the prayer of Daniel. 
Uh, One of the longest prayers in the Bible, certainly the Old Testament, it's this prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 all the way through verse 19. We find Daniel as he's interceding on behalf of God's people. He's been confessing sin. He's been acknowledging the fact. He recognizes the whole Babylonian captivity was the result of Israel's disobedience. God's people have been carried away into captivity because of their disobedience. And yet Daniel is praying, he's confessing sin, and he's asking God to restore God's people to their inheritance. In fact, the only petitions that Daniel makes uh, in his prayer come at the end of the prayer where he simply asks God to uh, make his face to shine upon his sanctuary once more, which had been desolate. It had been laying in a heap of ruins for the past nearly 70 years since uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had completely destroyed the temple and carried the Jews off into captivity to Babylon. So that's Daniel's prayer, and the answer to his prayer is given at the end of this ninth chapter, and it comes in the form of a prophecy, and that prophecy is known as uh, the 70 weeks, or the 77s, which basically it's a prophetic timetable or calendar that God gives to Daniel, he shows Daniel, uh, and it's it's Israel and the future of Israel and, uh, and all of that. I don't have time to get into that today, but what I want to do is I want to show you how ultimately this prophecy that's given, which we'll look at later on, it's an answer to the prayer that Daniel prays. So so here's the principle that I want you to see from this text this morning. In response to Daniel's prayer, Daniel is given the insight that he needs into his situation. You ever found yourself in the midst of a situation that you didn't understand? Maybe faced with a set of circumstances you didn't know how to respond to. Maybe you didn't know which end was up, which end was down. You're going to find great encouragement from Daniel's prayer and the way that God answers Daniel's prayer. So I want to speak from this subject this morning, answers to prayer, because that's largely what these verses represent. Lehman Strauss He's an Old Testament scholar, but he's pointed out that there are really three significant chapters in the Old Testament, all of which uh, comprise a a prayer that's very significant. You've got Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9. All three of these chapters really are a prayer in which we find a servant of God on his knees before the word of God, and he's interceding on behalf of the people of God. And Strauss makes this observation. He says, Old Testament prophets did not sit in a passive state waiting for a revelation from God through a dream, a vision, or a voice. But rather, they spent time in prayer searching for the message and the meaning of prophecy. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 10, when he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully. That is, they took their time. They went back through prophecy that had previously been revealed. They carefully examined it. They meditated upon it. They searched and diligently inquired. That's what Daniel is doing here in this ninth chapter. He's been carefully searching, pouring over the revealed word of God, praying earnestly for God's intervention on Israel's behalf. 
And then he prays, and the answer to his prayer is given at the end of the text of chapter 9. And ultimately, God's going to reveal to Daniel the plan for Israel's future in what many have referred to as the backbone of Bible prophecy. Now, as we look at this text, there are a few things that I want to point out. Number one, notice with me the pattern that is sort of reflected here in Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer is, is a pattern that helps us for the sake of our own prayer lives. If you look at verse 20, you ought to underline the verbs that are used there in verse 20. And verse 20 is basically a summary statement of the previous 19 verses, where Daniel tells us, here's what I had been doing. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God. Daniel says, that's what I've been doing. Speaking, praying, confessing, and presenting his requests. So again, like all of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel is a man of prayer. Prayer played a vital part in his life. We know that he's a man who frequently prayed. We've already seen this in our study of this book. Whenever challenges were presented to him, Daniel met those challenges through prayer. He sought God's face through prayer. Chapter 6, we're told that it was his habit to pray three times a day. That was a practice he continued, even when it had become illegal for him to do so. It was prayer that resulted in Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Well, this ninth chapter shows us that Daniel is fervent in his prayer life. And really, it's almost as if we're eavesdropping on Daniel as we're listening in on his prayer, this fervent prayer that he prayed in response to something that he had seen while in his study of God's word. Now, again, I don't want to say a whole lot about this, but Daniel's prayer is a pattern for us in our prayer lives. What type of pattern is it? Well, for starters, it provides us with a scriptural pattern for prayer. Uh, Daniel's prayer is born out of his time of Bible study. Uh, he had been living through roughly 70 years of Babylonian captivity. If he was carried away as a teenager, uh, we're told back up in verse number one that he's, he's, he's telling us all of this, the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, which was 539 B.C., so by this point, Daniel has been in Babylon roughly 68, 69 years or so. So he's a man, more than likely, who's in his early to mid-80s. His life and his position of influence ought to have allowed him to live a worry-free life. I mean, we know that he had been successful in Babylon. We know that he had been promoted through the ranks of Babylon's leading wise men, uh, he had been given the position of chief administrator of the wise men of Babylon, so he had been very successful. I like what David Jeremiah says. Uh, he says, by this point, Daniel could have been collecting his social security check, wrapped himself up in a Persian shawl, and let somebody else worry about the world's problems. But is that where we find Daniel at this point in his life? No, it's not. Instead, we're told that he had his Bible open. He's serious as far as his study of the prophetic scriptures that the Jews were careful to bring with them into Babylon from Jerusalem all of those many decades before. Now listen, there's a, there's a, there's a lesson here. You never reach a point in your life where you're free to just check out from the world around you. No matter how old you get, 
no matter how successful you become, God always has something for you to do. God always, there's always a contribution that he intends for you to make. He gives you resources to do that. He gives you opportunity and time to do that. Neither do we ever reach this point where we become unteachable. We never reach this point where we sort of arrive, we have nothing more to learn. Daniel is is a man who knows God, he's walked with God for decades, and yet he's pouring over the truth of Scripture while in Babylon. He's still learning, he's still making his contribution. What is it that he had been reading? Well, we know that he had been reading from the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. We're told that in verse number two of this ninth chapter. As he kept reading, he discovered that the end of the 70-year captivity was close. Daniel reads from Jeremiah that God had a future plan for his people. He had not forgotten the promises that he had made to Abraham and to David. God promised to visit his people and bring them back into their land at the end of 70 years. And Daniel's reading all of that, and he knows that the time is near. More than likely, he's been reading from Jeremiah 29, uh, where the Lord says, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good, not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. So Daniel's reading that. Uh, He realizes that the time for God's people to return to Jerusalem was drawing near. And so Daniel hits his knees in response to what he reads from God's word. And his prayer, basically he's saying, Lord, would you do what you've said you're going to do? God's word affected him so deep within his heart that he fell on his knees and he prays in response. And there's a principle from this that we learn as far as our own prayer lives are concerned. This is a scriptural pattern for prayer. Did you know that the word of God will generate your prayer life and fuel your prayer life unlike anything else? What is it that fuels prayer in my life and your life as Christ's disciple? It's not so much our need. It's not so much our wants and the requests that we have. We tend to think of prayer as being uh, the means by which we present our grocery list to God. God, would you give me groceries this month? And while that's certainly true, we do petition Almighty God through prayer. For the most part, prayer is simply the reflex of a soul in which God's word has come into that person's life and that person in response, that scripture fuels his or her prayer life and you pray back the promises of God to the God that gave them. That's what Daniel's doing here. So this is a scriptural prayer. God's word ought to drive us to our knees unlike anything else. You know, sometimes people ask this question, well, in my devotional life, what should I do first? Should I pray first and then read my Bible, or should I read my Bible and then pray? Well, I tend to believe that you ought to ask the Holy Spirit to give you illumination as you spend time in God's word, but spend time in God's word and then discover that God's word will fuel your prayer life unlike anything else. It's what it does for Daniel in this ninth chapter. So the pattern for prayer here is a scriptural pattern. But then notice also, it's a sincere pattern. How does Daniel approach God? Well, verse three, he says, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
So this prayer is a sincere prayer. This is not a half-hearted prayer. This is not the fruit of a man who's just simply going through some type of religious ritual. No, this is a sincere prayer that Daniel sincerely prays from a burdened heart. This is not religion from a man at ease. This is not the posture of someone who's going through a comfortable little ritual that's void of passionate expression. What we find here in this text is the intense cry of a heart that's gripped by the truth, a mind that's caught up with the majesty of God. This is an all-consuming reflex of the soul. It's a sincere prayer, if ever there has been sincere prayer offered up. By the way, you ought to read the Bible and discover all of the opportunities or the, the, the passages that you find where God's people pray and their prayer is fervent in nature. I think about Jesus and his prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest. The Bible says he's praying so fervently that sweat drops of blood begin, the, the capillaries more than likely in his forehead begin to burst as he's praying with such fervent expression with intensity of mind and heart. The early church, they come together in the book of Acts. They pray with such fervent expression. The Bible says that the house in which they were meeting was literally shaken to its foundation. I guarantee you they weren't all just sprawled out on couches, just sort of flippantly, nonchalantly offering up their prayers. No, I just have this idea that they were on their knees. Their voices were raised in unified chorus and they're lifting up their voices to the God of heaven. And it's such an intense expression of their heart and their soul that the foundation of the place is shaken. Daniel is praying sincerely and that sincere prayer is fervent prayer. Listen, you realize that God won't listen to some prayers? Not all prayer that's offered up to God is heard by God. Daniel recognizes this. Why do you think he says what he does in verse 17? He says, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. He says in verse 18, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see. There's some prayer that God does not listen to. You say, what do you mean? What type of prayer does God not listen to? The psalmist says in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I'm treasuring sin in my heart and I'm not in fellowship with God, the Lord will not hear me. Some prayers are so unacceptable to God that he plugs up his ears that he can't hear. He covers his eyes so that he can't see. And listen, if that's you, then it doesn't matter how eloquent your words are. It doesn't matter how fervent your cries are. What's needed in your life is repentance and confession. Thank God 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you grateful for that gospel promise? I'm so thankful. So Daniel's prayer here, it's scriptural, it's it's sincere, but then notice that it presents us with a submissive pattern. Verse 20, he says, I was presenting my plea before the Lord my God. That is, he knew the one that he was calling upon. 
In fact, the only time that the covenant name of God is found in the book of Daniel, it's found eight times right here in Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel's prayer. And that's significant because uh, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that's God's relational name, and, and, and Daniel is asking the covenant God, the God of covenant, to remember his promise. So he's calling upon the relational name of God here in his prayer. He submitted to God in his prayer. And really he uses all three of the proper names of God that we find in the Old Testament. Yahweh, that's the relational name of God, the covenant name of God. Uh, Adonai, that's the name of God that uh, speaks of him as our Lord and Master. He's the ruler of my life, the boss of my life. And then Elohim, that's the name for God that's used in Genesis chapter one, the God of creation with whom nothing is impossible, the God who spoke creation out of nothing. Isn't that amazing? So Daniel is calling upon the God of covenant who's the boss of his life with whom all things are possible. Is that the God that you call on when you pray as a believer? You approach God through Jesus Christ. Do you understand who he is? He's the God who's related to you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But is he the Lord and the boss of your life? Is he Adonai? Do you recognize that he's Elohim? Do you recognize that he's the omnipotent God who spoke everything that there is out of nothing? That means there is no obstacle. There is no challenge that I'll ever face that's too big for my God that my God can't handle. That's the faith that Daniel is displaying here in his prayer. So, so his pattern for prayer, it's scriptural, it's sincere, it's submissive, it's also sensitive. And by that, I mean he's, he's, he's keenly aware of his sin and his need for God's grace. He's understood something about the holiness of God as well as his own sin. He said, I, while I was speaking, while I was praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. How does he begin his prayer? You go back to verse five. He acknowledges the fact, we have sinned and done wrong. So he's sensitive to the holiness of God, sensitive to his sin and his need for God's grace. Now let me show you something. You know there's not a single negative thing that's mentioned about Daniel's life in the pages of God's word. He's only one of just a few individuals that that's, that's true of. Nothing negative is mentioned about Daniel's life or his witness. You think about David, King David, a man after God's own heart, but we know that there's some negative things mentioned about David's life. David committed adultery with another man's wife and then had that man murdered. Moses, the lawgiver, great leader that Moses was, we know that Mo there's some negative things mentioned about Moses' life. On one occasion, as Moses was leading God's people, uh, Moses was told to speak to a rock and water would come out. Well, Moses is agitated. He's fired up. He has a temper. He takes his stick and he smites the rock. He disobeys God and it cost him dearly. So there's some negative things mentioned about Moses, but not Daniel. That does not mean that Daniel was a perfect man. We know that there's only one perfect man who's ever lived and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's significant that nothing negative is mentioned about Daniel. And yet, here you find Daniel confessing his own sin. 
He's identifying with the people of God in their sin. He's not standing over them as a Lord, pointing an accusatory finger, but rather in a show of solidarity with God's people, corporately he's confessing the sin of his people, the sin of Israel. Listen, you want God to hear your prayers, you better take sin seriously. You better be sensitive to the sin in your own life. That's why God's placed his spirit within you as a believer. When I've sinned against someone, when I've sinned against Almighty God, the Holy Spirit who lives within me makes me keenly aware of the fact that I've disobeyed. And I've got to get it right. If I'm to go on, I've got to get it right. That's why I'm glad the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Every moment that you're alive, every day that you have to live, you've got an opportunity for things to be absolutely right between you and God and other people around you. And it's all been made possible through Christ. So Daniel's prayer, it's a scriptural pattern. Uh, he's, he's sincere in the way that he prays. He's sensitive as far as sin is concerned. But then notice how specific he is. This is a specific pattern for prayer. Daniel makes some specific requests, and those requests are mentioned there at the end of his prayer. Specifically, he's asking for God to make his face shine upon his sanctuary. Specifically, he's concerned for the glory of God above anything else in his prayer. He doesn't spend his prayer, it's not consumed on his own desires. His prayer is not consumed with a sense of his own need. None of that, he's worshiped God. Here's a man who is concerned ultimately for the glory of God above all things. Lord, I've read what you've said you were going to do in your word through the prophet Jeremiah. Now God, I'm asking you to do it. Lord, would you restore your people to their inheritance? Would you remember your covenant? For the sake of your own name, not for the sake of our righteousness, but Lord, for the sake of who you are. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, by the way. Lord, for the sake of who you are, on the basis of what you've done and who you are, would you hear, would you forgive, would you pay attention and act? Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary once more. Now, that's the pattern for Daniel's prayer. Quickly, Notice, secondly, the the, the perception that he's given in response to his prayer. What's the perception? Look at verse 20 again. It says, while I was speaking and praying. Verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, he came to me in swift flight. (laughs) Daniel's not even through with his prayer, and God's already showed up with an answer. Doesn't that just testify of God's goodness? Verse 23, Gabriel tells Daniel, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell you what it is. I like what one preacher said. When Daniel started fasting, Gabriel started flying. And you read the prayer, it takes you about three minutes to read it, but man, Gabriel was there with an answer. And that answer that's given, it's this prophecy concerning Israel's future and the coming of the Messiah. That's the answer that's given. Now what's an amazing thing, Daniel has been so caught up and concerned with the captivity, he recognized that the people were in bondage, uh, they're in captivity because of their sin. I don't have time to get to this, but 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I believe it is, says, 
that it was because of the neglected Sabbath year. You go back in 490 years of, of history prior to the Babylonian captivity, the law of Moses specified that every seventh year the land had to be fallow. That is, no Israelite could work the land, could plant crops, harvest crops every seventh year because every seventh year was intended to be a year of Sabbath rest for the land. Well, Israel neglected those Sabbath years. They despised God's word concerning the Sabbath year. And so for 490 years, every seventh year went neglected. They didn't honor the Sabbath year. And because of that, for 70 years, they were kept in captivity because of the neglected Sabbath years so that the land could have its rest. So in his prayer, Daniel is concerned with the 490 prior years of disobedience. What's amazing, when God sends him the answer, God's not so much concerned with the prior 490 years of disobedience, he's going to give Daniel some insight into the 490 years that Israel would have in terms of her future. And what does that future hold? Let me tell you, look, verse number 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. Verse 26, an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. So listen to me, stay here with me. The answer to Daniel's prayer is a Messiah who's going to come, a Messiah who's going to be cut off, a Messiah who it's going to seem will have nothing. Now, in Jesus' day, the Jews were anticipating a Messiah to be a political conqueror, someone who'd come in and overthrow the Roman occupation and establish his kingdom and rule over the world from Jerusalem. Now, we know that's going to be the case when Jesus comes again, right? The next time he comes, he's not coming via Bethlehem stable. He's not coming as a baby. He's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. He's coming, listen, he's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. That's what he's going to do when he comes again. He's coming to take over. He's not going to be on the Democrat side. He's not going to be on the Republican side. He's not going to be on the socialist side. He's not going to be on the capitalist side. When he comes again, he's coming to take over. But before that happens, prophetically, Daniel is being given insight here that Messiah is going to be cut off. What does that mean? Listen, we know in retrospect it meant that the Lamb of God, he's slain from the foundation of the world. He comes to suffer and die as an atonement for the sins of his people. Israel's disobedience and my disobedience and your disobedience, God punished Jesus Christ on the cross because of my sin and your sin. So that through faith in him, we could be forgiven and enter into his rest. And folks, that's the gospel. So the answer to Daniel's prayer, what I'm trying to show you is the answer to Daniel's prayer is Jesus. Ultimately, the answer to your prayer is Jesus. The fulfillment of your hopes, in, it's Jesus Christ. You want life, you won't find it anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. In so many ways, we wanna make Jesus merely an addendum to our life when he is our life. 
He doesn't come to merely give me reward for eternity. He is my reward in eternity. And that's what Daniel is being shown here. And so this is the insight that he's given as Gabriel comes with this message. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you're greatly loved. That's going to be repeated over in the next chapter. Chapter 10, Daniel's going to be told twice more that he is greatly loved. The only other person who's ever given such a word is the Apostle John, who in the Gospel of John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there's an interesting connection between Daniel and John because both Daniel and John, these two men above any other, were given insight into the future as far as God's plan is concerned. Daniel, his prophecy here in the book that bears his name, and John, through the prophecy that's given him, that's recorded in the book of Revelation. But what a word this is for me and you. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. You don't think your prayer's being heard? What if the words went out, but the answer just hadn't got here yet? Don't quit. Don't give up. Would you stand with me for prayer? I've got to stop here. There was a lady who was so distraught over some things that were happening in her life that she didn't quite understand. So her pastor went to visit her, and when she told him about all that was going on in her life, she pleaded with him. She said, Brother Hoffman, what shall I do? I don't know what to do with these circumstances. What shall I do? Well, the pastor didn't really know what to say to her, so he read a few verses of Scripture to her, and he tried to give her the best practical advice that he could think of on the fly. So he said to her, you cannot do better than to take all of your sorrows and struggles to Jesus. You must tell Jesus. That's what he told her. Well, surprisingly, this, this off-the-cuff kind of counsel really warmed her heart. And it wasn't long before her countenance completely changed, and with joy in her heart, she agreed with her pastor, yes, I must tell Jesus all about it. Well, that pastor, his name was Elisha Hoffman. When he returned to his study, he couldn't get those words out of his mind, I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. And so before the day was done, he had crafted the words to a hymn that has comforted so many hearts over the last century. And those words simply say this, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. Well, Daniel's been wrestling with his world. He's been wrestling with his universe. He's read some things in God's word that really gripped his heart, moved him to pray. He doesn't understand it all, but what is it that he does? He gets on his knees and he tells it to Jesus. What about you? Do you know him this morning? If not, then I urge you from wherever you may be, turn from your sin, place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross. 
rose again from the dead. Confess him as your Lord. If you're a believer this morning and you're, you're, you, you've got a healthy dose of trials going on in your life right now, then listen, you can be encouraged. Just tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray this morning. We're so thankful for the privilege we have of coming before you, our Heavenly Father, through the merits of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, we can come before you in prayer and we can pour out our soul, just like Daniel does here in this ninth chapter. And oh, what a pattern is established for us in our prayer lives in this text. But God, thank you that the answer for prayer, ultimately, it's found in Jesus Christ. No matter our disappointments and no matter our frustrations, Lord, may you be glorified in our hearts and lives. You are the answer. So Lord, I pray that as we sing, as we respond, whatever decisions need to be made today, Lord, may your people have freedom to do so. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.